Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Tennis Weekly with Joel and Kim, sponsored by DownloadTennis.com. On today's US Open semi-finals catch-up. Sviantec and Jabur get set for a final showdown. Rude and Alcaraz battle for number one. And Joe Salisbury wins his second straight US Open men's doubles title. Chris, today is the 10th of September and we are here to catch up on the US Open semi-finals at Tennis Weekly HQ. I am back in the hot seat. I'm back from my travels. And as I have got back, Kim has gone to Wales. She has actually gone on her travels again. How dare she? You are the kind of constant, you are you are what is holding us together over the last couple of weeks for our, our US Open round by rounds coverage. Um, how How are you feeling? How has it been? Have you... Actually, I don't really care about that. The, the one question I do care about is, have you missed me? You have been missed. And you, for many reasons, but I'd say mainly technological. Um, <laughs> but no, no, of course you've been missed. I think um, we did try and make sure that there were things in the podcast where we, we did mention where there was something, a prediction mm. that you might have got right. Or if there was uh, a, few, a few little comments in there. Some were sort of thinly veiled digs at some of your predictions, Ari, Sabalenka, yes. <laughs> you know. Well, I have you know, I am the only one of us still in collector sets. So my prediction... I haven't missed you. I, I changed my answer. That bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, what I have missed was uh, definitely, uh, you know, editing and uploading <laughs> at 2am in some hotel room. You know, I've, I really, really missed that. Glamorous lifestyle that you have, Joel. The glamorous lifestyle. Exactly, exactly. But... Uh, yeah, it's been it's it's great it's great to be back. I'm not gonna lie, I've been I was missing it. You know, we've had some fantastic matches that I have you know, missed out on, and also with with Kim and Nadal, I was I wish I was there for for that to to hear what she had to say about you know Nadal going out to. I've had some tricky times on the pod TFA. in the last couple of episodes, Joel. Yeah, I can testing imagine times. it must have been a bit. Yeah, some very testing times, but uh, I am back. Kim sadly is in Wales at the moment. We're hoping that our finals catch up on Monday will be all three of us, the gang back together, but we'll be me and Chris for this episode. And we're going to be talking about the men's semifinals that happened overnight in the UK last night, the women's semifinals as well. We've got the men's doubles with Joe Salisbury winning the, the battle of the Brits against Neil Skupski, which we're going to be touching on. And we're going to be making some tenuous predictions for the finals. So, uh, Lots to lots to talk about as usual, and we're going to start with the men's semi-finals from last night. Karen Kachanov, Casper Ruud, and Carlos Alcaraz versus Francis Tiafo. Chris, let's start with. I mean, let's just start with the the four players we have left at the the US Open semi-finals in the men's competition because I read this fantastic stat that Kachanov, Ruud, Tiafo, and Alcaraz. We have. Four first-time US Open men's semi-finalists. And that is the first time 
that has ever happened since the inaugural US Championships in 1881. Uh, I remember it well. <laughs> you know, we, but you know, back in my yeah, day, yeah, exactly. exactly. I mean, we we can all remember the result. And who were those four, um, Joel? <laughs> <laughs> Still active on the tour. Exactly. I might go find that out afterwards. But what is what was kind of your take going into the semi-finals and the fact that we don't have we don't have Nadal, we don't obviously have Novak Djokovic, who, who didn't who didn't come to to who wasn't able to to come to New York. We've got four first-time semi-finalists. None of these are, are Grand Slam champions. It feels very new, but also to me feels feels very welcome at the same time. Yeah, I think I've seen some really positive reactions to the fact that there are new players that people are seeing and everyone's playing exciting tennis. So I think in no way is it bad for tennis. I think from a, uh, for the perspective of entertainment value, I think that Alcaraz is definitely, and TFO throughout this tournament, the American dream story and Alcaraz, sort of this, this young gun who has the potential to be the youngest world number one ever. Um, and I think yeah. those are the stories that are really lighting up these semifinals. And so I think it's a shame that they had to play each other in the semifinals, but it's great to, to see Carlos kind of coming through after a great year in a major and coming through this far. But I have to say, I do, I do feel there is that sort of, uh, I, we talked about consistency in the earlier pods, but they've been such a presence, sort of the, the big three um, and sort of some of the, the players like uh, Sasha, as well as, um, team in the last couple of years in Medvedev that it does feel like a little bit of a letdown in the sense that we don't have those sort of big stories because Casper uh, versus sort of um, Karen that's not necessarily one of those matches where you would think oh there's an underdog story there's who's going to get that it's more like a it's uncharted territory which is as you say positive and a negative yeah I, I know what you mean and I think you know, for me, there has been like uncharted areas that have come to life this tournament. I mean, we'll come on to it when we talk about you know Carlos Alcaraz. But Carlos Alcaraz, Yannick Sinner in the quarterfinals, five set match, mm. fantastic, fantastic entertainment. For me, I'm hoping that's going to really blossom into a rivalry that is going to hopefully go, you know, for many, many years. And I think this was an excellent kind of showcase for that. Mm. And and of course, you know, in the final as well, we're going to have rude versus Alcaraz, which is going to be a battle for a world number one spot. You know, forget just winning the, the US Open title. The fact that it's got the world number one ranking on the line is an amazing, I think is an amazing story. We definitely don't have that happen very often at such a at such a high level, at such a high occasion. I mean, before we kind of talk about the finals, let's talk about the, the matches specifically in, in the semis. So we had the first one, Karen Kachanov versus Kasper Ruud. Kasper Ruud came through in four sets, had a little bit of a, a third set blip, but came through 7-6-6-2, Now we were both we were both watching this on the on the TV, and I've got to be honest, when I was watching the first the first set, I was actually quite surprised by how many breaks there were. There were lots of breakpoint opportunities. I don't know if both players started a little bit nervy, but uh, yeah, for me. I was just watching that match and thinking if Rude plays to his ability, I feel like he technically is a better tennis player than Karen Kachanov. Yeah, I think when I've seen um, Rude play, I've seen him play, I think in Rome this year, he mm. he's a very impressive technical player. He's very solid. There's lots of, uh, well, there's lots of variety in his game, but also the basics don't look like they could break down. 
Whereas I think with no. Karen, we've seen the forehand can break down, the serve can break down, and the serve did break down, you know, in the the, the second and, and fourth sets. His numbers were completely different. It was almost like he had like a, a first service transplant to something completely different. So I think, um, yeah, I'd agree with that. I think that Casper is someone who can consistently put together the good performances. And technically, I mean, that that is why, because he has that, that base to rely on. Yeah, and I think you know what what surprised me about Kachinov, or what frustrates me about Kachinov is, I just felt seemingly there were just some general kind of rally shots that he was playing, and as you said, these these just unforced errors just just come in, um, you know, off his his forehand wing. I know he's you know he prefers very much to play you know on his double handed backhand, and that looked very you know very very solid, but yeah, there were a few too many errors I feel from the, the forehand side, whether it was dragging wide or going into the net. And you just can't give up those cheap points to someone like Casper Ruud, who is so solid and, you know, really kind of makes you work, I think, for your points. And I do think an element of that is is Ruud and just how far he, you know, he stands behind the baseline. And perhaps, you know, Kachinov as well, I think it was a little bit clear that when he was coming to the net, for example, in that transition and also his volleys, his net game, again, wasn't where it needed to be, I feel, to make the most of of Rude at times being so far back from the court. It felt like he wasn't necessarily, he felt like it was a, maybe a step too slower or, you know, wasn't as close to the net as he would have liked to have been. And as a result, it, it sort of let Rude stay in the point. So I think certainly for me, Kachinov is a bit more of a, a bit more limited than than Rude. Amazing that he's been able to get to the semifinals, but it feels like Rude, despite, you know, his age, he feels just to me like more of the complete player. Yeah, he's definitely more of the seasoned uh, professional without a doubt and I think he he takes that approach to all the matches that he plays he's very disciplined and you feel like he has this sort of serene quality about him in this tournament where he isn't panicking mm. in the Berrettini match Berrettini wasn't playing well but he was actually starting to play better towards that match kind of coming to a conclusion and he kept a level head he didn't over push and he steadied the ship and got through that and I feel like that's kind of what he did in this match where he didn't panic after losing that fourth set he was very uh, rational about it, thinking that Karen was serving brilliantly and it wasn't on his racket in that. He didn't have any regrets about that. He moved on mm. and he played a great final set. But I would say the point you've made on, on net points, I've seen so many players at the net this tournament. I think it's because of the, the fact that people are playing such a physical game from the back of the court that almost the only way to finish a point um, mm. is to come in. And that is probably not what a lot of these players practice when they're on the practice courts. No. It's not Karen's normal game. He does play doubles quite a lot with Rublev. But the point that you just made, I think he was 55% of net points won and he came in 31 times. Whereas Casper was obviously setting up the point better because he won 20 of 23. So I think it's that that sort of the all-round game that really helped Casper um, in this match because as you say, like Kachanov, you don't really think, ah, he's at the net. This is this is an easy put away um mm, exactly it's definitely not like that for him and you know just talking about the fact that you know rude has been to a grand slam final this season um you know he's going to be a multiple grand slam finalist which not too many in in the same season which not too many people have done outside of the the big three but what could you take from that that kind of french open final because i know we were speaking before the podcast particularly about his serve mm. and <laughs> comparing it from you know, what it was doing and how effective it was at the French Open final compared to, you know, how it's been working, you know, in this tournament, particularly in this match against Kachinov. 
it feels very much like night and day, doesn't it? It really does. Because I was trying to look to see kind of what was the biggest difference in terms of how he's been playing, because it feels like mm. he's being more aggressive and he's taking the ball on a lot more. And when it comes to serving, he's also kind of posting much, much better numbers. Um, 83% of first serve points won in the Kachanov match and 10 aces. And in the French Open final, obviously it's a different occasion. It is the final, but he had kind of zero aces and only 53% of first serve points won. So I was looking at some of the numbers and I actually think that he's um, slowed down his second serve slightly, which I think is quite interesting because it kind of puts the onus on the person returning to take the point on and it does give you more time to recover your position. Um, he's obviously hitting his spots a lot better and he's obviously less, um, well, he can rely on that serve. It seems like he's got a lot more confidence behind it. But I did think it was interesting that giving people two quite different looking serves, one being relatively pacey and the second being quite a bit slower might actually be working to his advantage because players aren't able to kind of get that rhythm going. But the same is true for his um, his game off the ground. I mean, he's hitting more winners. I mean, I ask, I ask you this, Joel, have you ever seen Casper hit that many winners um, and take the ball on that much? Like some of the shot making was sort of highlights that you're, you're not used to see him taking on the point as much and dominating a rally. We used to see him almost like winning the war of attrition. Yes, I, no, I agree. I think, um, I think that's what's impressed me um, is that when he needed to be, he has been aggressive and has been able to do that effectively, you know, hitting more winners than unforced errors. He hit 53 winners in this match to 34 unforced errors. And, you know, at times you do see that that attritional type of, of Kasparud. I certainly think that when you see him returning that, you know, the Karen Kachinov serve when he's like so far behind the baseline. I mean, even on commentary, they were suggesting, you know, maybe Kachinov should have thrown in some, some underarm serves given how far Rude was behind the baseline. And I don't know if that's, you know, a legacy of, of Rafael Nadal, who, you know, he, he's definitely kind of looks up to as, as you kind of spoken about in, in his French open run. But you know, once he does get into the points, he does, yeah, look to kind of step up a little bit closer to the baseline and really kind of take it to, to his opponent. And, Again, I just felt that Kachinov was allowing him to do that. I think Kachinov for me was a little bit passive at times in the sense that he was hoping Rude's level was was going to drop and you know his level was going to stay consistent and that was going to get him, you know, through, you know, through the match. And there were kind of times, you know, there were a couple of moments I think when, you know, Rude's level did drop, you know, particularly towards the end of that third set. Um he played a, you know, a bad service game. Um, Kachinov served great in that in that third set, but it didn't really happen in, enough. Mm. And and Rude, it just felt like he went, you know, he went for it. He wasn't gonna. For me, it felt like he wasn't gonna die wandering. And to me, that is what kind of led him led him to get to the you know get to the final. And I, I wonder if he's motivated not just by the fact that he could win his first ever you know Grand Slam, particularly after reaching the final earlier in the season, mm. but also the fact that he can. He could be the world number one. Mm. And, you know, to me, what's amazing about that is he is, I think, number seven at the moment. And he could jump from number seven to number one, which I believe is the biggest jump um, oh, wow. that a player would ever do, uh, has ever has ever achieved mm. um, even to get to the to get mm. to number one in the world. So I do wonder if that was, you know, obviously he was would have been motivated by that. But certainly I think that he took the game to Kachanov and Kachanov really wasn't, able to you know I think impose himself as much as he would have liked due to that aggressiveness of Rude. 
Yeah, and I think that that's a great point because Kachanov's game, when he was at his peak in the top 10, it was very much hitting players off the court. And it ha- you have to have 100% commitment to do that. So I was quite surprised that the rallies were not necessarily uh, Kachanov being aggressive and Rude being defensive. It was actually almost the, the reverse in many ways. Yeah. Which It was Rude finishing it off within within five shots, I think. You know, there were some, some statistics about the, the, the rally length and actually... You know, I think, you know, maybe a lot of people would have thought, oh, yeah, going into this, you would have favoured Rude more the, the kind of the, the the points went on. But actually, the reality was Rude was looking to get those those points done, you know, quite quite quickly as, as soon as they were getting in. I think a lot of the rallies were, you know, five shots or less and they were in favour of Casper Rude. So it just, again, shows his aggressive approach that he brought to the court and, yeah, ultimately catching off he couldn't really live with it. Yeah, and I think that's something that his um his father and his coach has been speaking about is that obviously he mm. grew up on clay and he was a clay specialist and he's finding his way on some of the hard courts and he's had some great results on hard courts, but it's almost a completely different game than what he plays on the clay. If you look at where although he is returning far back um in uh far back in the court, it's something that he does push forward in a way that when you see him play on mm. clay, he doesn't do it as much. So it's really impressive yep. to see changing your game, adapting your game for the surface. And it seems like he's really found his feet on hard courts now. Maybe not grass. <laughs> <laughs> no. Grass is for golf, he said, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it is impressive because, as you say, it feels like two. he's had to have two different you know approaches. And it just shows how talented he mm. is in terms of being able to kind of have different setups for different surfaces and uh yeah i will we'll have to see how he gets on in the final he will be facing carlos alcaraz who came through in five sets against france's tiafo home favorite tiafo looking to be first american in a long long time i think since andy roddick to make a grand slam final as an american but unfortunately not able to do so alcaraz <laughs> winning another five set match uh six seven six three six one Six seven, six three. I mean, <laughs> Alcaraz. This game for me is a testament just to the the conditioning um, of Carlos Alcaraz. I think you know there are times when you know we've seen you know, better ten- better tennis from him, but the fact that he's now fed, he's now played what three five set matches in a row has gone past what I think he was he had gone past two a.m. in his you know two previous matches. The fact that he was able to come out and do this again. Four hours and 19 minutes on court against another very physical player in, in Francis TFO. I mean, this is seriously impressive from uh, from from a teenager whose whose body is is still growing. Yeah, it's a far cry from Jack Draper not being able to last a set in sort of his sort of debut. It's <laughs> no, he's almost like a, a it, super being. Jack Draper should have Carlos Alcaraz on his like a picture of him on his wall around like the conditioning that, that he needs well just follow him around and find out what he's getting up to you know is he just a, a superhuman i mean may, maybe emma radicani could learn something from that conditioning yeah. um at such a young age but it's it's something where a few years ago there was talk around the fact that players took a bit longer to mature because it had become such a physical game and i think that's something that now when you look at what he's doing and what uh, alcaraz is able to do it is against the trend in terms of how he's able to do this and take the physical game to his opponents. And it must give you a lot of confidence when you are someone who is that fit and knows you can last for, what is it, 13 hours combined or something. You know that that person really has to beat you 
um, and that, for example, if you do get a close, like I think in the Sinner match, there was a, a match point to Sinner. He still knows that it's not just about saving that match point. He knows he's got another set in him. Whereas that's something that a lot of players can't take that much comfort in because they might think, right, I need to get this done in two or I need to get this done in, in four because of the fact that, um, you know, that they aren't in such a great condition and the game has, has become so physical. But I mean, it was a great match. I think it wasn't as necessarily the level that we've seen um, from Carlos at, at, at times and the same for TFO. I think they both played quite quite well, but I think it was... I mean, Carlos did have a great unforced error to winner ratio. I think it was 59 winners to 37 unforced errors, and TFO was more level in his numbers. But it was one where there were moments where they were both playing fantastic tennis and it was super competitive, but there were also times where uh, you did question whether we would, whether he would get it done, you know, in four, whether it would become such an epic. And I think it's one where, as he moves forward, getting these matches done sooner like when he had the opportunity in the fourth set will really help him because going into the final that's a challenge yeah I, I agree I think that's the that's the biggest question you know coming out of of this match is just the amount of hours he spent on court and I know we think oh Carlos Alcaraz he's a teenager you know he's he's gonna have he can so run forever energy he's gonna be able to run forever exactly but at this high level you just wonder where is his limit does he have a limit because at the moment I don't think he we just assume, yeah, he can just stay competitive, you know, the longer a match goes on. But it feels like he's going to maybe break at some point. And against someone like Carlos Alcaraz, uh, sorry, against Carlos Alcaraz, against himself, against Casper Ruud, who could maybe be, you know, more in that kind of attritional mindset. It could be a, a strategy to, you know, potentially wear down Alcaraz. But Francis Tiafo, I think, w- was great, particularly in the tie breaks. Mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed hearing, Chris, that. I think he's now he beat the record of Pete Sampras for most tie breaks won um, at the U.S. Open uh, without dropping a tie break. He went eight and zero in tie breaks won versus tie breaks lost, which I thought was fantastic. I think it just shows how much heart he has, you know, as a player. He, I know we see him as very much a, a personality, and of course, he's playing in front of his his home home crowd and. You know, that really kind of G'd him up as well. But I, I thought it was impressive to see him be able to take it to a, a fifth set because you know, Alcaraz did have his, his opportunities to get it done. And you do wonder if he gives those opportunities to, to Rude, maybe he won't be as, you know, as favourable mm. as, as TFO was in the semi. Yeah, I think with TFO, he is let down by his return game. And so part of the reason why he's mm. in so many tie breaks is because he does struggle to... Um, kind of get the return points and the breaks that would set up um, a set like a, a 6-3 or a 6-1 because obviously in this match for example um, there were three sets that were pretty routine sets of 6-3, 6-1 and 6-3 that Carlos won in the two tie breaks uh, TFO was able to win so I think one it's about being able to make sure that you're able to improve your re- return game but it's also about staying present and keeping that level of intensity up um, throughout the match and I think TFO loses a lot of emotional energy and after tie breaks he does have a letdown and so I think it's something where what Alcaraz is able to do is keep that level the same way and at times other players are able to match it but if they're not he will get the job done so I think against a player like Casper very similar like Casper's going to play a very good match throughout the match um, and I think that's that's exactly how um, Alcaraz plays as well they will be they will show mm. up in every set and so I think that's something that 
um it'd be fascinating to see kind of how that one pans out um given kind of as you say the physicality of the both yeah and it doesn't feel like they're going to be phased by the like the occasion you know rude already has been in a, in a grand slam final this season so can take that experience and carlos alcaraz even though he's not been in a a Grand Slam final before. He's just had so many, what feels like very big matches. High profile. With so many cameras on him, um, you know, on the, you know, since coming on to the tour. Again, I think he's not going to be phased by the occasion. I think he's going to gonna revel in it. I think, you know, both Alcaraz and, and TFO, what we saw in this match, they're both, they both love to, to play up to the crowd. Interesting, you talking about that emotional energy and how Alcaraz perhaps is able to channel it more consistently across you know a, a five set match versus TFO who is more maybe gets caught up in the moment and has to give himself a little bit of a breather and as a result the momentum although he has the momentum initially it goes very much quickly back to his opponent I mean do you think that's something TFO could work on because I still feel like that's that's just a natural part of of his game but perhaps there's a need for him to channel that in a in a slightly different way than he is at the moment? Yeah, I mean, it's not um, a big criticism. It's just something that if you are able mm. to um, maintain kind of your, the level of kind of emotional intensity that you have, I think it's something where, you know, for example, Federer is very level-headed. Nadal, very level-headed. Djokovic, also very level-headed. And it's something when you see how they react to points on court, and obviously at times they're animated, but that's after they've done something. So they don't spend as much of that emotional energy actually mm. in the match. It's more in the celebration um, because they just don't go away mentally. They are so in the match. And I think it's almost like TFO might win one of these sets and then he just has a big sort of uh, exhale, you know, and then he's building it back mm. up again. And then he almost ends up in a situation yep. where he has to do something incredible to break back or it becomes too big of a mountain and too much of a... Uh, a rise and fall in terms of his energy but that's also something that comes with maturity and different players reach maturity at different different points and he's talked about the fact that he does feel now that he has that maturity so it's something that he's shown in this tournament he's able to do and maybe in this match it was that step too far but it wasn't a step too far for Carlos Alcaraz and Casper Ruud as well getting to the final so Alcaraz leads the the, the head to head against Casper Ruud 2-0 they did face each other at the Miami Open earlier this year Alcaraz coming through I don't feel like we can really read too much into that the interesting context and, and background to the match and to the final is the fact that the world number one ranking is on the line I mean where are you where are you thinking this match is is going to go because as you said they're both very physical players it could be a war of attrition from the back of the court I don't feel like they're going to be phased by the occasion that perhaps you know Dominic team and Sasha Zverev did, you know, a few a few years back. But yeah, where do you where where do you see this playing out? What do you think are going to be the the key areas? I mean, that match is a great one to reference the team Zverev match because mm. that was one of the worst finals I've ever seen yeah. in terms of people being completely paralysed by the moment in terms of the quality being mm. so low. And I think it actually was a detriment to interest in tennis when there isn't a big one of the big players playing. And I think what would be great from this match would be if it was super competitive and people went out there to win it. And that's what they've both been doing in their matches is they are going out to win their matches. They aren't kind of waiting for an error or playing tentatively. And I think that if they can keep that mindset, then we're in for a great match. I think, as you say, the form book, I think you have to throw that out the window because we talked in the last podcast about 
Casper and Ben Shelton like less than two weeks ago or three weeks ago now. <laughs> and mm. I feel like Casper had no idea he said that he could be number one going into this. So I don't think he's really thinking about it because he's not really, it was not like he's been working towards this for, you know, eight years just with, I'm so close. I've been at number two all this time. As you say, he's been at number seven. So this is almost in the bonus territory. So I hope they both see this as something where they weren't necessarily expecting to make the final here, but it's a great opportunity for them to do something that will be historic for Casper as a Norwegian um, and for Alcaraz as someone who is would be one of the youngest players to to ascend to the top spot. But if I, if, you, if I was pushed on how I think this one will go, I think it will probably be... I think Casper probably has shown the not necessarily the higher level but consistently I think and I think he's shut down players quite early and he's managed to keep um, a level head and I think the balance of Casper being able to hit winners like I haven't seen him hit winners before as well as retrieve as well as he does I think it will give him um, and he's been volleying well as well coming in so I think the all-around consistency might outweigh some of the the Twitter highlights that we see from Alcaraz and I think Mm, I think the 13 hours I don't know how anyone can bounce back from that. I don't think anyone's yeah. played that much coming into a final. That for me is the the biggest question. And I think <laughs> Rude is probably one of the worst opponents to come up. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, against with, you know, having just played, what, 13 hours, three, five setters. I mean, if there's anyone who could do it, Carlos Alcaraz is, is that person, I think. But yeah, it's going to be very, very tough. And you would have to, I feel like you have to give the edge to Casper Rude based on, yeah, based on you know their journey, kind of coming into the into the final. But um, yeah, I th- yeah, I, I'm gonna say I'm gonna go Casper Rude as well. I'm gonna say Casper Rude. I think Casper Rude in five, but I think that fifth set will be like a a six a six two where like Alcaraz is just he's given as good as he's got, and he's got very very close, but he's just run out as Steve in the end I think oh really so you think it will be five sets to Casper I think it might get done in four potentially but I think mm-hmm. like I'd love to find out kind of what you think of where will this match be won and lost because they do play in quite a similar style as you've talked about I feel like it will mostly be from the the back of the court and I think how both players return each other's serves is going to be very important as you said rude rude's been serving i think very very well i think it's been one of his most improved shots since the french open so i think it's going to be important to see how alcaraz returns and and handles that in order to get himself in the point Mm. um i don't feel like many give up cheap unforced errors as well um from the the back Mm. of the court so again i think that's going to be very important when it comes to just minimizing any sort of three points to your opponent because both of these players I feel are just known for not giving up you know that much and I think it'll be interesting to me to see how it plays out I think I think those are great points I also think that something we don't talk about enough is that Alcaraz doesn't actually have a great first serve he doesn't get cheap points Mm. off it and as he does everything the hard way that's just why it's even more impressive and partly why maybe he does get to so many long matches because he doesn't get the aces behind his first serve or necessarily the three points Mm. so that's something where serving well will be really, really important. But also returning is something where I've seen him break serve so many times this tournament. But if I were to say where this match we won and lost, I think it's it's on the mindset. It's between the ears in terms of who rises to the occasion and who keeps a clear head because there are so many pitfalls in a five-set match where you can get ahead of yourself, you can start thinking about it. And 
when we touch upon sort of the, the women's semifinals, it is a case where if you get in your head, it can slip away very quickly, um, even from a winning position. So I think someone's got to go out there with a clear game plan and just try and nail it and really um, take it on. Because if you don't, you end up with a uh, a Dominic sort of Sasha match, which was, um, I mean, that was something yeah. else. <laughs> Rather out of our memories than, than in our memories. Yes, right? let's replace it with this. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, we do have really exciting we have had british success uh this week at the us open we've had joe salisbury and rajiv ram making us open doubles history they defended their title which is not very very easy to do last people to do that were todd woodbridge and mark woodford in new york in 1995 and 1996 they defeated neil skupski and wesley Kulhoff 7675 very very tight um very very tight final but yeah joe salisbury and rajiv ram they were the number one seed so i guess in in essence they were they were the favorites but uh amazing for british tennis to have two brits on either side of the on either side of the different teams on either side of the net getting to the final but yeah joe salisbury Running out victory. And Chris, I'll have you know, Neil Scupsy has been added to the, the the GB Davis Cup squad. I know you were your heart was set on it being Jack Draper. I really yeah, was. Neil is in there. Well, at least we now know there was an extra place because that was something that I, I was convinced there was not an extra place. So I think that um <laughs> that does settle that debate. And it does seem like that was probably because Jack was, was not uh, fit after kind of sustaining mm. that injury. But as you say, like it's great to see um sort of the British pedigree when it comes to doubles coming through and uh it's great to see two two British pairs um or two British players in separate pairs um in a final together I think it's it was a it was a great match um Joe Salisbury is such an impressive athlete in terms of some of the the highlights I've seen of his matches I don't feel like he ever gets the plaudits he mm. deserves yeah I, I, like, I would agree with that we don't that. really talk we don't really celebrate that I think he's now won three grand slam you know men's doubles titles and two mixed doubles yeah yeah it doesn't feel like it gets the acknowledgement arguably it deserves do you, would you say that's fair i'd agree i think he's kind of quietly goes about his business and he puts in the work he's a fantastic athlete and he um he's bringing home the results i think if you look at him his last two years on the doubles circuit it's been hugely impressive at a time when there's quite a lot of really great doubles pairs and doubles players. So I'd agree, like he he definitely should get more credit because he is without question, I mean, he's world number one for a reason. Um, and it's not because of kind of the fact he got lucky and something, he's backed it up. So I agree. I think he should get a lot more credit for his play and his achievements. Yeah, and he's certainly, for, for British fans anyway, they're both peaking at the right time Salisbury and Skupski going into Davis Cup post US Open so um yeah hopefully that can be a little bit of uh extra x factor for the the GB team because I know doubles is so important when it comes to kind of team competitions it's always great to have um someone like a Joe Salisbury and a Neil Skupski in your squad so um hopefully that will help us going forward in in the GB team but we're going to take a quick break now but I hope you can join us in the second half where we will be having a look back on all the women's semi-finals action. So don't go anywhere. Welcome back to our US Open semi-finals catch-up sponsored by DownloadTennis.com. And now we are going to move on to the women's semi-finals. Caroline Garcia, Onjabor, Igor Arena, Sabalenka. 
Chris, we're going to start with Caroline Garcia versus Onjabor. Probably for the best that Kim isn't here. Definitely. The, the, the manner of the defeat for, for Garcia. Very, 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 very routine scoreline. I mean, yeah, what, what did you make of this? I feel like Kim, as I say, will be disappointed with how Garcia, you talked about being paralyzed by nerves. That was the feeling I got because this was her first Grand Slam semi final. And despite all the momentum going into the, you know, into the tournament and the streak she was on, I think the frustration, frustrating thing for Garcia would have been that she just didn't really show it against Onjabor. Yeah, and uh, I think it's always going to happen when a player who hasn't necessarily had the form and then does come back into form. And even at the start of the tournament, she said, well, no one's really talking about me, even though I have been putting these results together. And then when you get to the semi-final, having had such a great quarterfinal win in such a big moment against Coco Golf, people were starting to think, well, maybe Garcia is the one to beat. And it's amazing how much that can, can flip a switch in terms of how you're thinking, because it's really about how you seize that moment. And we talked about that with the men's final, but it did look like... Garcia was unable to... 6-1-6-3. Mm. I wasn't expecting that scoreline. There were not even any breakpoint opportunities on the on the on Jabour serve. Which is hard to believe, considering I don't think Jabour put together kind of the best service um, statistics. I think no. it just shows that if you've won 13 matches in a row, for example, you're fo- like that's a, it's very hard to not have a wobble. And we've seen that with Iga when she put her run together, where I think it was Samsonova where she almost lost in Stuttgart. And you won't play your best tennis every every time. But the nature of Garcia's game is if she is off, it's as I said, with like it's a bit like a Kvitova, then Mm. suddenly your game Yeah, because you have to you have to keep go for your shots. That's how she's got to where she she is in the semifinals and winning masters tournaments. So it's sad to see because we'd have loved this to go to three, but I really think that I would have loved to have it to be competitive, to be quite honest. Yeah. I mean it was a big disappointment. Um there was a lot of hype Mm. for this match. Kim and I were very hyped for the match, but I think um, the Renaissance, you know, it, it's a period. It's not necessarily a single <laughs> triumph. And on the path to the Andy Murray prophecy being realised, there's yes. plenty more opportunities um, towards mm. the end of this month. And she does always tend to have great ends to seasons. Um, she tends to play her, her best season towards yeah. the end. So hopefully she can get that ranking up and we'll see her perform just as well next year. I mean, she has had a she has had a fantastic run to the semi-finals. I think, you know, she's been largely you know, great, great on served. I know that didn't necessarily happen on the return game against uh, Jabour. But um, yeah, Jabour, obviously she got to the, the Wimbledon final and now she's got to the US Open final. I mean, how much motivation do you think she's, she's got from getting so close you know at Wimbledon not being able to to become you know champion and the fact that you know she has now you know got to the the US Open final because for me it's amazing that you know there were no ranking points involved in the you know in Wimbledon and as a result I think Jabour's ranking has stayed you know she was seeded at five in, in this tournament but I do think there's an argument to say that you know with this with this win getting to the final and the fact that we have a final between her and Iga Siontek, regardless of, of what the rankings say at the moment, this feels to me like we have got the best two players in the world in a final. And that feels to me like complete kind of light years away from, from last year's final, which was a relatively unknown qualifier, Emma Raducanu, 
against uh, Leila Fernandez. Yeah, for me, it just shows, I think, you know, particularly with this match and how ruthless she was against Garcia, that she is the de facto second best player in the world at the moment. Yeah, and I think this is probably one of the first matches where I have seen her as being as being that because I think when people mm. do start against Ons, they don't think that they're going to necessarily lose the match. We saw in the French Open, obviously the first round upset. We've seen matches where she hasn't always uh, turned up from the off. So for her to start and so strongly, I think is something that is quite unusual for her. Um, and it feels like you talked about the Wimbledon final. I think a big part of her doing well here is that you lose the Wimbledon final. You think your world is over. And I think she realized it wasn't and that she's able to take some of those positives now. And it does free you up that if she loses the final and Serena's talked about this, that um, in some of her later Grand Slam finals was that she did want it a lot, but she also was aware that the world doesn't stop. And I think when you do get to that sort of level, then I do think it does help you. And so, for example, Eager, when she had her run broken in Wimbledon, the world doesn't stop, you know, and it gives you the chance to build up again. And Kyrgios also sort of said a similar thing that it, it provided the the desire and the hunger to do it again and also kind of takes away some of the fear of it because it's not like she has... um the best record at the US Open and it's not like people were thinking oh Wimbledon final definitely a set for the final here so it's great to see that they're playing so well and playing so freely and I think this will hopefully be a better matchup than uh, they've played so far this year but I mean as you I think something that uh, we talked about previously was that she's match she's the match win leader for the last two years which I had no idea about that she was getting so many so many wins um and her form had been so consistent. So I think it's a um, testament to her that she's had back-to-back finals. Yeah, and she's certainly been playing, I think, a good level of, of tennis, you know, just, just to make the, the US Open final, which I would say you can't necessarily say about Iga Svantec in the other semi-final against Arena Sabalenka. I feel like the level we've seen from Svantec so far this tournament isn't up to the high standards I've you know, come to expect from her, particularly if you compare to the sort of tennis she was playing in the in the first half of the season. It's been more just finding a way to win through and really brings in, I think, her her mental qualities and her mental toughness and, and never giving up. And that was all on show in that in that set in that semi-final, Shiontek v Sabalenka. Shiontek coming through from a set down, 4-2 down in the third set as well. 3-6, 6-1, 6-4. Uh, yeah, I just feel like we've not seen the best of Shiontek, but still, it's been just about good enough, or she's been finding a way to get through and win to the final. Yeah, I think we, we talked about this. She came into the tournament as an unknown quantity in terms of her form. We didn't necessarily think she was the favourite to win it, and obviously she's been in situations where she has been the heavy favourite. So in some ways, um, that we could have seen that as kind of a a freeing um, element to, to her path here. But actually, you say, you're you completely right. She has had some difficult matches along the way um, and it hasn't always been clean. So I think... She's hit more unforced errors than winners across the whole tournament so far. That is that is quite surprising. Um, I think it will be interesting to see then what numbers she posts because in, in that semi-final, I did actually watch um, some of the end of that semi-final and I was very impressed with, as you say, her mentality because she at that point, was really hitting winners um, for the last two sets of that match. And 
we've seen that she has one of the best records when it comes to finals. I mean, I think she she's almost untouchable um, in finals apart from... Uh, no, actually, that wasn't a final against Carolina Garcia. So she just has that ability in finals to take it to a new level. So it'd be interesting to see, like, it doesn't matter what's gone before when it comes to a final. The only thing that matters is one match. You might have played the best tennis of your life, um, like Ons might have done uh, in the semi-final that she just played, or you might have just about got over the line. But you both go in there um, with the chance chance to win it and to start from a, a fresh page. I mean, on, on the topic of, of Sabalenka, because, you know, she was a set up, she was two love up in the third set, and she was four two up in, in, in the third set as well. I mean, I know we've just spoken about Sviontek and her mental qualities and these really shining through this tournament and perhaps making up for when, you know, her tennis on court hasn't been that great. But, you know, Sabalenka, she's been in semifinals before at, at Grand Slams. Another defeat here. We spoke earlier about you know the paralysis of you know of nerves or of of potentially thinking kind of too far forward. As much as this was the case of Shuantek raising her mental toughness, for you, what was was this also a bit of Sabalenka thinking, oh, I'm I'm so close to a Grand Slam final here, and and letting it letting the ball drop a little bit, or do you think that's unfair? I don't I don't think it's unfair because you have to uh, with Sabalenka if she is playing at the top of her level, then she's not opening the door to let someone take those opportunities. I think it was at 3-2 in that decider when she held for 4-2, having saved break points, that I thought um, it was something that she had kind of almost lifted that curse because that was one where if that had been a break, then I could see her losing that match. But I think at 4-2, I really thought she was going to do it this time. And Ego really did raise her level but as a result and response to that, um, Sabalenka did completely go into to, to meltdown there. And I would say it's a mixture of both. I think there's a, there's a history of it when it comes to the three sets in Wimbledon against Pliskova. Last year, she was up against Leila uh, Fernandez. She's lost each of her semifinals 6-4 in the third. Mm. So it, it makes me think that maybe there's... Back of her head, she's thinking about it. I don't know it. if she had those in the back of her mm. head when, you know, going into that third set because these are big moments in her career. She's a fantastic player and I think she will be a, a Grand Slam finalist at some point, but it seems to be a, a hurdle she's not been able to get over at the moment in terms of reaching the semifinals and not going on. I think she she just hopes, that it's almost she hopes that at the, towards the end of the match that someone might give her something and the difference between mm, the best players yeah. are that when their back's against the wall or in those final moments, they will find a way to raise their level. And that's what impressed me so much about Eager in this match is that she wasn't necessarily starting the match playing her best, but she really did find a way to win. Um, and she made it really difficult. She asked the questions. And I think you can't expect players not to, uh, and top players, like the world number one, for example, to give you any freebies. And I think she just thought she could almost nudge her way over the line. Um, and she's quite mentally fragile. I think we talked about emotional energy when it comes to these situations. Like she could hit a bad first serve and she'll react. And it's important to obviously express yourself on the court. But it's also important not to derail what was a very solid performance to get to 4-2 by getting down on yourself so quickly or panicking. Um, and it does feel like from an emotional perspective she's not able to keep the cool head that's required in some of these big moments. Yes, definitely. And we have a final now. Iga Shiontek 
versus Onjabor. As I say, I think this for me is the two best players in, in the WTA Tour at the moment. So another another kind of great you know matchup to look forward to uh, this evening. They've split their previous four meetings. Sviontek winning their last match. Um, which was this season in the Rome final. It was very, very easy for Sviontek, 6-2, 6-2. But again, Chris, where do you where do you see this match kind of playing out? Because I feel like Jabor has been playing the better tennis over the US Open so far. But I, I always just think about Igor Sviontek's record in Grand Slam finals, in finals in general. It's just so impeccable. And again, just speaking about the mental toughness that she has, that you have, that has taken her, I think, to, to world number one. Again, you just you just can't write her you just can't write her off because she's not playing the tennis you expect. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it doesn't matter what happens in the semi-final when it comes to the final. So for me, I think that Ons might be the favourite, but I think that Iga's going to come through this, um, and I think that's for for multiple reasons. I think she. By getting to the final, that might be something that potentially has surprised her. You know, that, that last match, when you come through a match where you're down in the final set, that can also free you up in how you play. I think off the ground, um, she is probably um, able to be more consistent in how she can play. Um, but she really has to commit to taking the ball on. We've seen Jabur not play her best in a final. And I kind of feel like that could be an issue in this. Do you think she'll think about that Wimbledon final? Do you think she'll that would be a positive for her or, or a negative in terms of going into an, another Grand Slam final this season? I hope she learns from the experience that it won't be overwhelming in this this time. I think it's different in the US Open and this is meant with no disrespect to the US Open, but it isn't Wimbledon. Like I think for a lot mm. of players, Wimbledon is the dream of the four Grand Slams. So maybe this is why people are able to to kind of play a bit more freely here. Yeah. Um, and it is a bit looser in that sense. Do you think Jabor is going into it as the underdog because Sviontek is, is world number one versus, you know, again, ladies final against Rybakina. I feel like Jabor was the more known entity. The more of the kind of media was, was talking about Jabor, I feel, as the, the favourite. Mm. Do you think that switch as well maybe helps Jabor a little bit? I think that, I do think that Ons would be, and I haven't looked at what the bookies sort of favourite is or anything like that, but I feel like what the what I've seen from her would mm. make me think that if she's able to play at the level that she's played throughout this tournament, um, that she would be the favourite. But then there have been wobbles, you know, even though she's been playing well at times. So I think um, for me, Ego's experience at this level is something that you can't deny the impact that can have. And especially when Ego hasn't ever been overwhelmed by the moment. And I think she's got over the line. She knows what it takes to get over the line. And I think in matches like this, um, form isn't as important as as we talked about with the men as well as the mindset that you take to the court. Interesting. I'm not sure. I, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I feel like I have to go on what I I see on on the court in terms of in terms of play. And again, I think for me, I've got to give the Jabor the you know the edge there. Mm. I think you know she's not leaked as many errors um i think her serve i think her serve is is better um i think Sviontek this you know last couple of weeks you know her serve has been very shaky you know it's been shaky i mean it is a shaky part of a game i think you know a lot of we've again i've always been speaking about on the pod how it feels one part of her game that certainly could use a bit of a bit of improvement but 
again, it could open it up, open up any you know of those service games to to Jabor um, to break. Um, so yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be tricky. But I I'm gonna give the edge to Jabor. I think I've okay. seen her play the better tennis. I think I've seen her play the better tennis this week, and I know that you know the lot. There is a lot to be said for Shvontek and her mental fortitude, but I just think Jabor is just gonna ride the US Open crowd, all that energy. And, and do it for uh, Andy Roddick. She's going to live up to. I think she's going to live up to expectation this time versus you know the Wimbledon final, where I think it was a little bit more of obviously a you know a deflating performance. Yeah, I mean, I I think Garcia's played the best tennis in this U.S. Open, but we mm. can all see how great things can can come to an end on the form book there. <laughs> Just because you play well in your previous match doesn't mean it will happen in in the next match, and Ooh, that, okay. that's the nature of the game. Do you think Shiontek will? Do you think Shiontek needs to? find a better performance to get through Jabor. she's got to play her best match of the tournament and i think she will yeah that's what i would say i'm very confident Ooh. in this one i think i don't know what straight yeah straight i, I do three. think it will be straight sets um okay are you gonna say Jabur in three then i'm gonna say Jabur in two <laughs> we are just uh, worlds yeah, apart <laughs> yes uh no i'm gonna go up uh, yeah quite bold there but yeah i'm i'm, I'm sensing jabor's gonna get it done i think she's on like a feel-good wave at the moment um i'm hoping she doesn't have the us open as her like iphone background because yes. i feel like that was a the biggest <laughs> the biggest a... problem was that 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 yeah the venus <laughs> yes. rosewater dish Bad omen yeah. For Wimbledon. yeah right yeah. she probably was so, dreaming uh... about it afterwards as well you know nightmares <laughs> exactly and uh yeah we'll have to wait and see i mean that match is tonight uh, in the uk so saturday saturday night saturday night sorted really really exciting we'll have to see how they get on and of course we have carlos alcaraz versus casper rude tomorrow night so it's got some fantastic finals to look forward to it for me this tournament has it felt felt like because it has been so open towards the end of the, the tournament it just feels so i don't know refreshing to see and again, the fact that we've got Shviontek v Yabor, the the best two women for me in the tour this season, I just think that this is such a great way, I feel, to end, particularly in the, on the women's side, such a great way to end the Grand Slam matches for, for 2022. Yeah, I agree. It's just nice to see players who have played well at the Slams also playing well at another Slam. And I think Iga's record this year, of she's had a semi-final in Australia, she's had a win, in Roland Garros, mm. obviously the third round in Wimbledon on her least sort of favourite surface. And then the final here, at least, I think it's something where it's great to see these matches of top tier players playing each other in finals. Yeah. And so same with Ons, backing up a Wimbledon final. It's not something that you see very often at the Tour right now. No. Um, as you say, last year, it was two players who were not expected to, to make the run here, mm. two unseeded players. So it's great to see a bit of the form book playing out. I think the men's side, my only slight disappointment is that some of the matchups didn't happen later in the tournament, such as like the the Kyrgios versus Medvedev. That would have been great as a semi-final or great as a quarter-final even. So I think that's definitely something where um, uh, it would have been great to have a couple more names in the semi-finals. But still, I think it doesn't make me any less excited. I think that was the worry, wasn't it? But, you know, obviously we, we did have like, you know, TFO there, home favourite, which is great. Carlos Alcaraz seems to be it's just like a global phenomenon at the moment. Everyone, you know, wants to everyone wants to get a piece of him. So yeah, that's been great. Oh, yeah, I was slightly annoyed seeing that Alcaraz was a quarterfinal. I'm hoping 
I feel like that will be a Grand Slam final in in years to come, maybe. But you know, it's got to you got to got to start somewhere. Got to start somewhere. Um, but uh, listeners, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this semi-finals catch up with Tennis Weekly. Remember to subscribe to us on whatever device you listen to us on to stay up to date on all the finals action to come at Flushing Meadows. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcasting platforms out there. You can also listen to us on the DownloadTennis.com app. And if you like what you're hearing, then make sure to leave us a rating and comment on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Follow us on social media and email the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It's at Tennis Weekly Pod. You can email the show at tennisweeklypod at gmail.com or check out our website at www.tennisweekly.co.uk. And we will be back on Monday at Tennis Weekly HQ. As I said, Kim hopefully will be back from her trip to Wales. So it will be all three of us for our final finals round by round (laughs) catch up of the US Open. Hoping to get that out on Monday evening. So I hope you can join us for that. But in the meantime, it's goodbye from Chris. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. We'll see you again soon.